including our series on the Sermon on the Mount with Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sands. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. Oh, there's a little sticker right here that says smile. I like that. I wasn't planning on doing that until I saw that, but now I'm going to change my whole outlook on this day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity to be together again with your people. Father, thank you for the fact that we are a church, one church, two congregations in two locations, Father, that we can come together and worship on a Sunday morning, divided by interstates and roads, but united by your son Jesus. Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now to fall upon us, to open our ears and our eyes, our hearts and our minds, to receive the truth of this wonderful sermon. In Christ's name, amen. So in 2005, that was about 11 years ago, a man named Michael Burry walked into Goldman Sachs Bank in New York City. And he wanted to make an investment. And so this is Hinsdale. A lot of you know what it's like to walk into a bank, to be seated by maybe the president or the vice president of the bank, because the amount of money that you have to invest kind of warrants that kind of attention to yourself. Maybe some of you know what that's like. And that was the case with Michael Burry. So he walked into Goldman Sachs, and he was immediately uh, introduced to the vice president, he was seated at a big table, and what Michael Burry wanted to do is he wanted to make an investment. But Michael Burry didn't want to make the kind of investment that really anybody in this room would want to make. He wanted to make investments in the tens of millions of dollars. But they didn't really have the thing that he wanted to invest in. It didn't exist. And so we had to convince them that they should create something, some kind of stock, some kind of security that he could purchase $10 million of. So what Michael Burry knew, he knew a couple things. He knew that all of us want a home. You want me to just switch? Try that? So Michael Burry knew that everybody here wants to have a house, wants to have a home, wants to have somewhere nice to live. And so when I went, in, went to seminary in 2004 in St. Louis, I would hear these commercials for these various mortgage companies. The one that I remember the most is, you know, if you want a mortgage, dial 188-GRANNY-8, 
and over and over and over again. And it would be, you know, no credit, bad credit, no problem. Come in and get a loan for a home. And so Michael Burry was a smart guy. He knew this was happening. And so what he, what he told the bank is he said, you know what I want to do? I want to invest in mortgages. And mortgages were being sold by banks on the kind of the secondary market. They would take a bunch of mortgage loans and they would bundle them together and then they would sell them. That's what Michael Burry wanted to do. He wanted to buy these mortgages. And normally you would think mortgages are a perfect investment. And so what Michael Burry said to these bankers didn't make sense. Because lots of people had come into the bank and said, I want to invest in securities. But what they meant was, I want to invest in securities just regularly. But Michael Burry said something different. See, the stock market, for those of you who don't know, works a little bit like Vegas, really. So not only can you invest in things that are going to go good, you can actually invest in things that are going to go bad. And that's what Michael Burry wanted to do. He said, here's what I want to do. I want to basically bet that all of your mortgages are going to go bad. And they laughed him right out of the room. They were like, are you kidding me? You want to, you want to invest $10 million and you want to bet that the mortgage market is going to collapse. That's never happened. You're a fool. Michael Burry said, take my word for it. I've read your loans. Oh, you read a couple of them? He said, no, I've read all of them, and I want to invest in them. So there's this wonderful scene in this movie, The Big Short, which I would recommend you see. It's all about this. And my, they take Michael Burry's money, and as he walks out, they're high-fiving each other because they think to themselves, we just took $10 million from a guy who's going to lose every penny because when's the mortgage market ever gone bad? And Michael Burry walked out of Goldman Sachs and walked across the street to another bank and another bank and another bank and another bank until he had hit basically every large investment bank in New York City and he asked the same thing. I want to buy securities and I want to bet that the mortgage market has failed and is going to fail. This is 2005. The market was just going like crazy. Dial 188-Granny-8, you want to have a home? Man, every time I drive up to Hinsdale, I look around and I see the homes that are up here. I want to have a home like that. I want to live in these big, huge brick homes with these fine trimmed lawns. Because it'll mean I've accomplished something. Sometimes people don't need to live in a house like that. They just want to live in a little bigger house. They want to be able to move from maybe a trailer into a home, from an apartment into a home because everybody else is doing it, because it'll mean something. And so there's this drive in them that they want to at least have the appearance of being successful. And banks knew this. And so the market was going good. What could possibly go wrong? And so the standards for loaning money kept going down and down and down. And what Michael Burry knew was that most of these loans were what were called adjustable rate mortgages. You get a loan for five years, at the end of it, you, re you, know, you reinvest, you refinance your mortgage. What could possibly go bad? And he knew the interest rates were going to go up. You know how the story ends, don't you? Most of you lived through this. 
A lot of you maybe know people who had to delay retirement because their life savings disappeared in the course of six months. When the interest rates went up, people couldn't refinance, people abandoned their homes, the stock market collapsed everywhere. We went into basically a global depression, even though we like to call it just a recession. That's basically what it was. By early 2009, it was banks were collapsing. Everything was falling apart. So what Michael knew was that the foundations of the stock market, of the securities market, were just appearances. They just looked good, but they really weren't. And he knew it was all going to come tumbling down and come tumbling down it did. And what that exposes in us is the fact that a lot of times, instead of settling for real security, for a real firm foundation, we'll settle for the appearance of it. And the appearance of it will be just fine until something goes wrong. And then we're exposed. So just to kind of remind you where we're going here, where we've been, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the end of one sermon that Jesus gave. Jesus is way more talented than Jeff and I will ever dream to be. So he could do in one sermon what we have to take like 15 to do. Slowly kind of unpacking it, explaining it. You know, he was just there and it was just the most perfectly put together sermon ever. About the blessing of righteousness. About what life is like in the kingdom. What does true righteousness look like? And if you look at this passage, if you have it in front of you in your bulletin, you'll see the beauty of the conclusion of this sermon. How completely concise it is, how simple it is, and yet how very different the outcomes of these two statements are. Look at what he says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then in verse 26, he says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. Do you see the symmetry of what he's saying? In verse 25, he says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house. And in verse 27, he says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and it beat against the house. And there's this perfect symmetry. But the outcome is different. See, in the first half, the persons built their house on a rock and everyone, uh, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But in the other outcome, it fell, and great was the fall of it. So if you're looking for a kind of catchphrase for this entire sermon, this would be it. Be the wise guy. Don't be the fool. That's basically what Jesus wants his listeners to hear. They've listened to this entire sermon, and he wants to sum it up for them. He's like, so you've just heard this sermon. Here's what I want you to do. Be the wise guy. Don't be the fool. And so how do we, how do we go about doing that? So what Jesus does here is he starts with a great, a great image, the image of a house. So I want to ask you for a second, just what is the purpose of a house? What is the purpose of a house? It's really kind of the same for everyone. It's where you live. It's the center of your life. And unlike today, where, you know, I've owned seven homes, not all at once, one after another, I've owned seven different homes. 
That's not the way it used to be. You owned one home and that was it. That was where you lived your whole life in that home. You never started in the starter and then, you know, moved to the suburbs of Jerusalem. That wasn't a thing. Oh, I need a gated community now. I really need a three-car garage. That was not a thing then. It was just this was the one house and only house you were ever going to have. And so it was an important house to have. It was the center of your life. So it was important that this house would endure that it would be around for your whole family to live in. There's another thing. Imagine your whole family moving into your house. Your whole family. Mm. There's a place for your possessions. Where you could keep all of your stuff. But it was shelter and security for your family. That's what it was. It was a place that when the storms came, you would go to your house, you wouldn't get wet. It was a place of shelter and security. And that was the same for everybody. The work and the effort to build a home was about the same for everybody. It took about the same amount of time. All the homes kind of even appeared the same. There weren't spacious palaces unless you were the governor. Most houses looked exactly the same. So there's this image that Jesus is using. That he understands that people understand that the purpose of a house is the same for everybody. The amount of work and effort it takes to have a house is the same for everybody. And the appearance of a house is pretty much the same for everybody. So it's just, everything's the same. And as one writer wrote, everything looks great when everything is great. Think about that for a second. Everything looks great until everything, as long as everything is great. It says here, until the rains fall, until the floods come, until the wind blows. That's when things change, when the levee breaks. I don't know, where, where's, where's, uh, where's Nick Owens? Where is he? Oh, there you are, there you are. So Nick, I don't know if you remember this or not, but uh, when I was in Iowa City, you guys sent a team to Iowa City from RUF Northwestern. Is that right? Were you, did you used to be at RUF Northwestern? Okay, well, let's pretend that you did. Because <laughs> it fits perfectly. I have a note here, see, to say RUF. So here's what we'll just say. RUF is awesome. RUF Northwestern is great. Uh, and RUF sent a team to come to Iowa. And why, might you ask, would they send a team to come to Iowa? Because in 2008, when I went there to plant a church, I somehow coordinated that with a massive flood that took place and it wiped out 5,000 homes. So if you're ever gonna plant a church, here's what you wanna do. You wanna do it in the middle of a natural disaster and when the stock market is crashing globally. That's the best, that's, that's when you wanna time it, you wanna go ask people for money when they're like, well, I had money last week, but I don't have any money now. And your city is underwater. I, wanna, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to just close your eyes for a minute. Just Everybody just close your eyes. I promise I'm not gonna rob you. Just close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to picture your house. So picture yourself standing in, your, in the living room of your house. And just kind of take, take a look around the house, look at the mental images of it. Maybe you're seeing, you know, hand-me-down furniture that's really nice. It's heirloom furniture. Maybe you're seeing your, your PS4, your Xbox, stereo systems, pictures of family, a favorite chair that you love to sit in. Maybe you just remodeled your kitchen. So as you're picturing that now, 
I want you to picture this. With your, kind of put your arms out to your side just for a second. Don't hit the person next to you, but just kind of put your arms out to your side. Okay? Now I want you to imagine that you're standing in your living room with your arms out to your side, except your arms are resting on water that's filled with sewage. And everything that you own is destroyed. You can open your eyes. When I pulled into Iowa City and Cedar Rapids in June of 2008, two things struck me. One was the visual image of row after row after row, street after street of homes with everything that had been inside those homes, outside those homes, between the sidewalk and the street, lined up about five feet tall. And by everything, I mean everything. Couches, chairs, pictures, boxes, you name it, it was outside. And you could drive from one mile, one edge of the town, all the way to the other edge of the town, because the, the town kind of was kind of low. There was a river that ran through the middle of it. And at one, one point during this flood, there was 25 feet of water in the, in the middle of downtown Cedar Rapids that went, you know, basically 20 blocks in every direction. Everything that people had was outside their house. Nothing took your breath away more than that sight than the smell. The smell of everything that these people owned rotting, filled with mold, and knowing there was nothing you could do except go into the house and basically rip it down to the studs and start from scratch. Everything that these people had worked for had been destroyed in just a matter of days. And if you look at this passage, one of the things that you'll notice is that the person who builds their house on the rock and the person who builds their house in the sand have one thing in common. The floods come, the rains come, and the winds come. Neither person is promised that if you build your house on the rock, there won't be a flood, there won't be rain, and there won't be wind. Both individuals, both people who build their homes are faced with adversity and difficulty that's devastating. And so Jesus' point is to get them to understand this, that no matter where they build, the storms will come, and that it's not about avoiding the storm. It's about enduring the storm. It's about passing through the storm safely. And then, of course, what we realize here is that Jesus isn't really talking about houses. He's talking about our lives. He's talking about something far bigger than a home. He's talking about your life and everything that you have, everything that you put into your life. And here's what he wants these people to know, that if we want security, if we want something that endures, we're called to move away from appearances to a firm foundation. So you might ask yourself, well, where, where will I find this firm foundation? And this is what Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who builds his house upon the rock. That the firm foundation that we're called to, 
to live by is, is the words of Christ. That's what he's asking as he says, everyone who does these words of mine. And as soon as he said that, anybody who's listening, it should kind of beg this question. What words? Oh, wait, the sermon you just gave? Oh, what did you say? I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. I was looking over there at the nice clothes of the Pharisee over there on the corner. Man, he's got nice clothes today. You say the words that you just said? Oh, maybe those were important words. See, in this, what Jesus is calling them to do is kind of go back and remember everything that he has said. To recall those words. So I think I've talked about this before, but today I brought a visual. How nice is that? So kids, when you're young and you're in school, you get to go to school sometimes and you get to do show and tell. This is kind of going to be like show and tell. So in 2008, I went to a school that taught me how to plant a church. And I got this book right here. It says 2008 Global Church Advancement. Ted Powers was there. He remembers me, probably. And there's little tabs in this. There's a tab for vision and calling and focus and prayer. I think I skipped that one completely. Uh, learning, philosophy, purpose, value, style, ministry model, discipleship model, planting model, finance plan. That was pretty funny in 2008. <laughs> Ministry plan, personal plan. That was great. So you went to this, and then out you went to go and plant a church. It was great. Then I went back to that church planting conference in 2011. This one says, instead of saying foundations, this one says essentials. This one has tabs like vision, prayer, discipleship. And I remember going to Ted Powers. I said, Ted, you know, a lot of the stuff in this book, it seems like it's the stuff that was in the other book that we got, like, I don't know, three years ago. It's a lot of these pictures are even kind of the same. And Ted said, well, there's a reason for that. And that's because when you come here through the, the first time, we know that you're just hearing the words. You're not going to do any of them. Because you think you're just going to go out there and just, you know, magically reinvent the wheel because you know better. And then that's why we always recommend that about two, three years later you come back. And when you come back, you have your hat in your hand. You're like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't understand anything. Everything's messed up. Help. You're like, oh, here we have another book for you. It's kind of the same as the old book. <laughs> but maybe this time you'll actually do what's in there. Yeah. Am I the only person who had that experience, Ted? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is not going well for me. But this is what Jesus wants. He says, whoever hears my words and does them. He wants them to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. There's a whole sermon's been about that. It's been about being doers of the word. It's been about people who pursue righteous character. Think about the sermon for a moment, where he started. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. This is the character that he wants them to pursue. Not the haughty, not the proud, not the people who strong arm to get their way. That he wants people to listen and to understand that the character, the righteous character that he wants is those who understand their own sin, who are mindful that they have nothing to offer God, 
except to put their hands out and ask for grace. And when they do that, then they relate to other people differently. They pursue righteous relationships. Blessed are the peacemakers. That God's people are supposed to be people who actually pursue peace. That what God wants, what Jesus wants, is a group of disciples and followers who are out there pursuing peace everywhere they go. Pursuing mercy, pursuing justice, pursuing forgiveness, despite the injury. That they want to lead with forgiveness, not with anger. That they want to be angry over the right things. Not angry because somebody cut me off in traffic, but angry over the fact that black people in Chicago are being exploited by payday loan services. That's what we're supposed to be angry about. But we're angry about the person who cuts us off in traffic in front of that thing. While somebody's, you know, having their finances robbed from them. We're supposed to not be people who judge, who walk around saying, I'm better than you, so I can look down on you and I can condemn you, even though I got this giant plank about this big sticking out of my eye. I shouldn't even be able to see. I should be trying to pull that thing out. Before I come after, you're the little speck in your eye. We're supposed to be people who come into a worship service on Sunday morning, and as we're depositing our check in the offering plate, we think to ourselves, wait a second, it occurs to me that I think Joe has something against me. I think I, think I might have offended Joe. I'm not supposed to even make my offering now. It's not important if somebody next to me sees me even making this offering. The most important thing for me to do right now is to not even make an offering, but to go to Joe and say, Joe, did I, did I offend you? Did, did I do something that hurt you? And then to be able to listen to Joe say, yes, yes, you did, as a matter of fact. And then to apologize and say, I, I was wrong about that. This, Pursuing righteous relationships, pursuing righteous worship. You maybe don't remember this because it was so long ago in the sermon series. But we started with the Lord's Prayer. You know the thing about the Lord's Prayer? Is who we're praying to. Who we're saying is the person who can supply what we need. And that is not us, but our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. That it's about his name, not about our name. It's just the great leveler of everything. Give us, not me, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive me my debts, us, our debts, as we forgive those around us. It's about righteous character, righteous relationships, and righteous worship. Some of us are here today, and we're thinking about this sermon, maybe, and we're thinking to ourselves, my life is an appearance. My life is an appearance more than it is real. Maybe some of you are in here thinking to yourselves right now, my marriage is an appearance. It's an appearance, really. That's all I work for, is just, I just try to keep up appearances. A lot of work goes into that. 
A lot of work goes into just keeping up appearances of trying to be the popular person in school. But it's not what we're called to do, and it's not how we're called to live. We're called to live as, as righteous people who have pursued righteous character, righteous relationships, and righteous worship. And here's the thing about when you realize that the foundation of your home is on sand, you know what the only way to change the foundation of that house is? You've got to jack the house up. And here's the thing about jacking the house up to put a new foundation in. You can't do it and not be seen. There's no like, oh, I just kind of jacked the house up real quick. Nobody noticed. People driving by, what's going on over there? Why is that house? Whoa, look at all that work. No, it's just a giant eyesore, isn't it? It attracts attention. Some of us need to do that. We need to go through that process. And the thing that we're the most scared about is jacking the house up and having people see that we've based our life on appearances. And this is why the church is so important. Because the church is the one place where you're supposed to be able to jack your house up in full exposure of everybody else and say, I built my life on appearances and it's time to make a change. And people come around and say, yeah, I did that to my house last week. Can I help? Can I be there for you? This is what Jesus is calling them to, to build on the words of Christ. And, and not just, of course, the words of Christ. He, he says what he really wants them to do. But to build their house upon the rock, upon Christ. There's other options. Those options don't always end well. But the psalmist acknowledges it. Psalm 73 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was anxious of the arrogance of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. But when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me wearisome task. Have you ever been there? Have you ever looked at somebody and said, hey, wait a second, I'm trying to live a righteous life right now, and the wicked are prospering. What's up with that? Psalm 73 continues. Isn't it great that God gave us songs to sing about the stuff that really goes on in our hearts? How come the wicked are prospering, God? Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and there I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and utterly swept away by terrors. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked to the heart, when I was brutish and arrogant, I was like a beast towards you. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put to an end everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works." This is what we're called to do, to build our life, not on appearances, but on a firm foundation, on a firm foundation that is Christ that results not just in security and endurance, but in blessing, in blessing of a people living righteous lives. This is the blessing of righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your words this morning that strike us at the very heart of who we are as broken, sinful people. 
of people who so often pursue appearances rather than a firm foundation. When you call us to live lives of righteousness, that we might experience the blessing of righteousness that comes through living the way that you call us to, of basing our lives on the work that you have done for us, on the gospel of Jesus Christ, who does what we cannot do. Father, we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.